0: Hello from Gilbert and Tobin, I'm Moya Dodd. And I'm Matt Rubenstein, and this is The Competitive Edge, what you need to know about competition law in Australia and around the world. Today, springtime in Washington.
1: GNT lawyer Anna Belgiorno-Nettis joins us to talk about global developments and local implications from the world's largest antitrust meeting, where she spoke on a panel on equity and competition law.
2: When the Competition and Consumer Act's objective was introduced, government back then was stressing that, It wasn't interested in competition for its own sake. It said that economic efficiency is one element of a broader public policy context, which also includes social considerations such as sustainability, community service, consumer interests, social welfare, and yes, it actually explicitly mentioned equity. But first, Matt, what's been happening around the
0: grounds? Well, we've just had not the world's largest antitrust conference, but possibly the world's friendliest. This is the Chris and Chris Hodgkiss Competition Conference in Sydney, which was held in real life for the first time since 2019. As always, it was under the Chatham House rule, which says that you can say what was said, but you can't say who said it. But the person who said it can say what they said, right?
1: Right. And ACCC Chair Gina Kaskotlieb and Commissioner Eliza Carver have released transcripts of their speeches. So we can say what those say.
0: We can. So Chair Cass Gottlieb reiterated the ACCC's priorities, which we talked about before. Mm -hmm. She spoke in some detail about the ACCC's cartel program and said they're now reviewing their cartel immunity policy, which has been in place for 20 years now and has been fine tuned every four or five years.
1: And that's still an important policy for detecting cartels, even though there are now AI
0: tools as well. It is, especially when there isn't a lot of public information to feed into the AI. True. And the chair said that immunity applications have increased over the last six months.
1: That might be linked to the Vena money transfer case, where the first jail terms were just imposed for cartel conduct, although they were suspended, weren't they?
0: Yeah, that might have focused some minds. The chair also talked about environmental issues and the sustainability task force they've set up. There's been a lot of talk about greenwashing, but the chair emphasised the ACCC's focus goes well beyond that and into the way all these new markets might develop and operate in the future.
1: We know there's a big debate around the world about collaboration between competitors
0: for environmental and sustainability purposes, don't we? There is, and the ACCC wants to support those, but it's also concerned that cooperation might lead to illegal collusion or increased concentration.
1: So it sounds like they'll still rely on the full authorization process to weigh up those benefits and detriments and publicly test them. In other words, you won't get a free pass just because
0: you're saving the world. That's right, you won't. There was some discussion at the conference about whether business should be allowed to self-assess these things, like they get in Europe, instead of going to the regulator every time. But that's generally not how we do things around here.
1: Mm, well, we're such an untrustworthy bunch, right? Because all the convicts?
0: That must be it. Commissioner Carver's talk was also really interesting. Among her various roles, she's the Enforcement Commissioner. She said she was a competition law purist with faith in the existing competition law regime, but she said digital platforms are a bit different. Is that like a test cricket fan who has a sneaky thing for T20 on the side? Exactly like that. She did point out that there can be a risk that these platforms might cause competitive harm that can become entrenched long before an enforcement remedy can be imposed.
1: But are digital platforms that different, really? I mean, there were monopolies in the old economy that lasted for decades before they were taken down by new entrants
0: or traditional antitrust law. There were, and an argument was put at the conference that a persuasive case for ex-anti-regulation hadn't yet been made. Maybe not enough work had been done to show that digital platforms had enduring market power, that it'd be used to the detriment of consumers. That position, though, was uh, compared with old King Canute sitting on the shore trying to stop the tide from coming in.
1: The Chatham House rule involves a lot of the passive voice, doesn't it?
0: A lot of the passive voice is often required by that rule. There were also some interesting discussions about penalties after the High Court in the Patterson case said that civil penalties are all about deterrence and don't have to be proportional to the conduct. That was seen by some as surprising, and there was a view that Justice Edelman's dissent in Patterson might be preferred in the long run.
1: Well, as the youngest High Court judge, he'll have plenty of time to share his views, won't he?
0: Under the Constitution, he'll have until about 2044. And after that, who knows, it will probably be court GPT. Can you imagine? But wrapping up the conference, uh, there are still ongoing concerns about the cartel provisions, their complexity, and the role of purpose in competition law. And Justice Wigney's cryptic crossword quote was mentioned at least once. Uh, and are we calling that a shout out to our podcast? I'm going to take it that way.
1: Well, apart from Chatham House, are there any other
0: houses that have famous rules? I mean, there's the Cider House rules, of course, which was a 1985 novel by John Irving, who also wrote the screenplay for the 1999 film. Well, you're making me thirsty. What are those rules? They're the rules for the workers who make the cider, basically. A lot of them are about not drinking or going up on the roof too often. But really, they're all about the nature of rules, of course, and who makes the rules and who has to live by them.
1: And John Irving had to write the novel and then the screenplay as well. Couldn't he just use AI to do that?
0: I guess no, not back then. But that's actually one of the things that the Writers Guild of America is striking over right now. They want to make sure that AI isn't used to write or rewrite literary material, that it won't be used as source material either, and they don't want their material to be used to train any AI.
1: So, should we be striking in solidarity, Matt? I mean, assuming this podcast counts as literary material.
0: Big assumption. But maybe if they haven't worked it all out by the time the World Cup starts, that might be the time to strike. I like it. Sounds like a plan. What else is going on? Well, it's still on digital platforms. The ACCC has also released its sixth interim report of the Digital Platform Services Inquiry. Repo number six. That's right. This one is on social media services, uh, and it finds that Facebook and Instagram together account for the most monthly users and the most time spent on social media in Australia. Though TikTok has grown the fastest, particularly with the younger demographic.
1: Well, I believe TikTok is the number one platform for football victory dancers, isn't it? And of course, for Matilda's defender, Alana Kennedy, catching sight of her own broken nose on the big screen. Yeah, 10 million views on that one. Yeah. So it looks like the recommendations here are basically the same as repo number five. Let's have codes of conduct and processes for scams and dispute resolution,
0: and let's prohibit unfair trading practices. That's pretty much it. Uh, and as we've mentioned before, repo number seven will be about expanding digital ecosystems, and is due to go to government in September of 2023. Now, I just saw that the 10th Fast and Furious movie has
1: just come out with a disappointing title of Fast X, and I don't think the DPSIs are going to catch up at this stage, are they?
0: Now, if my maths is right, there'll only be nine interim reports before the final report, so I don't think we'll get a DPSI X. Isn't that something to do with the weighted average cost of capital? Well, that's more of a written joke, isn't it? Well, yeah. You are a scriptwriter. <laughs> In other news, the UK has just introduced the Digital Markets, Competition and Consumers Bill, the DMCC, which will greatly increase the powers of the Competition and Market Authority and its Digital Markets Unit. So we've had straight out of competition, and now it's run DMCC. Very good. And actually, a lot of this has been coming since the Furman Report of 2019, which of course was co-written by our podcast guest and antitrust rapper, Philip Marston, Mr Straight Out of Competition himself.
1: And that report ended up being
0: called Unlocking Digital Competition. Although he wanted to call it, the winner takes it all. Yeah, he's working across genres there. Cross-code economists, impressive. Very. So the digital markets unit has been operating for a while within the CMA, but now it's going to have powers to enforce a new ex-anti-regulatory regime for digital platforms that have strategic market status. That'll include conduct requirements to counter the effects of market power, as well as pro-competitive interventions to address the sources of market power and mandatory reporting of digital mergers.
1: Well, there's a lot there, and it'll take a while to work through the House of Commons and the House of Lords, and of course, the newly coronated king has to give his royal assent. So when will they be deciding which platforms have strategic market status?
0: Yeah, they'll have to do an investigation for each one, but they have already done separate assessments under pretty similar criteria that found that Google and Apple would have strategic market status. And they've also done a market study that said that Google and Facebook had market power in online advertising. And should be covered by an ex-ante regime. So, we'll see if anything changes there. We will. Did you watch the coronation, Maya? Um, not on
1: purpose. I, I thought it was a replay of Mighty Gras. <laughs>
0: Fair enough. I thought the coronation quiche looked pretty good, especially after 70 years of coronation chicken.
1: Yeah, and of course, during the coronation chicken years, the UK joined and then left Europe, which is still at the cutting edge of digital regulation. The European rules for potential gatekeepers under their Digital Markets Act have just kicked in, so digital platforms will now have to notify their core services so the European Commission can decide whether they'll be designated.
0: They will, and the European Digital Services Act is even further ahead. The Commission has just designated its first very large online platforms and very large online search engines. Oh, are there any surprises amongst those VLOPS and V-losers? Well, the only search engines are Google and Bing, so not really a surprise. But the platforms include the usual suspects, but also AliExpress, uh, Booking.com, Wikipedia and Zalando, which is a German platform originally for shoes. Platform shoes, got it. Well, with great scale comes great responsibility, said Commissioner Thierry Breton in an actual press release. But isn't that a line from a movie? Mm, Kind of. Anyway, as we potentially move down a similar path here in Australia, we'll keep an eye on what's happening, particularly in Europe and the UK. We sure will. But first, Matt, you recently sat down with Anna
1: belgiorno Nettis, who's just come back from the American Bar Association's Antitrust Spring Meeting in
0: Washington, DC. That's right. It's a really critical time in antitrust globally, and Anna was right there in the middle of it. She had a lot to say about the goals of antitrust and how governments are getting things done, whether that's through changes to the law or new ways to use existing tools.
1: Mm,
0: big antitrust. Let's take a listen. We're joined today by Anna belgiorno Nettis, who's a lawyer in the Competition Regulation Group here at Gilbert and Tobin, and is just back from the American Bar Association's spring meeting in Washington, DC, which by the sound of it, was huge in pretty much every way. Anna, welcome to the Competitive Edge.
2: Thank you so much, Matt, and and very true on that comment. It really was an enormous conference.
0: What could you tell us about the, the main themes of the conference and what the general mood was like, the the vibe, if you like?
2: There was really a sense, I felt, Matt, across the panels that it's a pretty pivotal time in competition law globally. There was a reflection by panelists about how societies are focused on competition law and engaging with competition law in a way that they haven't in in the recent past. And Competition law, of course, has always been intrinsically linked to consumer welfare, yet it's a very different feeling when you have the sense that consumers themselves are actually engaging with the issues. It's part of dinner table conversations, as some panelists said. And that, I felt, really added a sense of gravitas to the event where there seemed to be a consciousness at spring meeting that we're in the midst of an important time for our profession. Key themes that kept coming up over and over, there definitely were a few. In fact, um, the ACCC commissioner that attended spring meeting and was on a panel, Liza Carver, she joked that Attendees might think the regulators themselves were colluding given the amount of similarity in some of the topics that they covered. So uh, on a broad brush, I'd say those were increasing prevalence of AI, digital platform regulation, sustainability, progressive antitrust, and how global all these issues are becoming.
0: Obviously, a global conference, but it's based in America. There would have been a lot of US practitioners and uh, agency representatives there. With the new administration um, coming in two years ago now, there was a lot of expectation about some big changes to antitrust law in the US. There were a lot of new bills floating around, uh, new appointments to the agencies. What was the feeling like this time around, after the midterm elections, um, when the legislative agenda is probably going to be tougher to get through than it might have been
2: before? One of the keynote events, the chairs showcase was precisely focused on that. It was titled moving the needle, what actually influences antitrust. And the panelists in that session did query whether options such as legislation, legislative reform and, and even judicial processes in the US were effective enough ways of enacting change for the kinds of industries and questions we're seeing today. And the moderator of that showcase actually posed a question around whether courts were too slow or, in her words, actually receptive enough to certain arguments. And in terms of legislative action, especially, as you say, post-midterms, some panelists spoke to how partisan or ideological the process can be and in some ways has become in the States. And you can see that, for example, in how the progressive antitrust movements been framed. And the risk of ideologically inhibited legislative processes in the US is is definitely front of mind. I thought it quite interesting to compare that context that's happening over there in America with our context here in Australia and how different it is on that point. The ACCC's executive general manager, Marcus Betsy, who also spoke um, there mentioned that In Australia, despite the recent change that we've had to a Labor government, the ACCC policies are largely a continuation of what we had under the former Liberal government. And that really speaks to how there's a less partisan competition law conversation happening here, that's for sure. It's
0: always really instructive, I think, to see how our regulators present themselves to the world uh, among their peers when they're on the road. What else did we learn from our own regulators talking at the ABA conference?
2: If I were to pull out three key themes, they'd be ESG, especially in relation to environmental sustainability, digital platforms, and cartel conduct. So on the ESG front, Marcus Betsy in his fireside chat mentioned a real focus on the authorization process that we have where you're able to authorize conduct um, that's potentially uh, anti-competitive, if it has broader public benefits. And he, and he talked about how that is quite an effective model for environmental sustainability claims. Commissioner Carver touched on how many of the consumer law complaints that the ACCC has been receiving recently are very linked to sustainability She also noted that the ACCC is moving forward with guidelines on cooperation around sustainability issues. And Liza Carver is the chair of the ACCC's enforcement committee. And she's also the deputy chair of the exemptions committee. And she said that she's very conscious of the balancing act that the ACCC needs to play between promoting competition on the one side of things, but also being facilitative of genuine initiatives by industry around sustainability.
0: How about digital platforms, obviously that's something that's affecting regulators across the world.
2: Marcus Betsy, in answering a question on whether the ACCC prioritises local or global issues, he really pointed to the extensive work that the ACCC has done on digital platforms to say that the key prioritisation is cases that cause harms in Australia. So, if there's harm to Australian consumers, the ACCC will take it no matter what's going on globally. And for her part, Commissioner Carver noted that the ACCC has come to what she called the commonly held view that there are deficiencies in current platform regulation. And she explained, as listeners will know, that the ACCC has recommended something similar to the UK which are these mandatory service-specific codes as outlined in the fifth interim report of the C's Digital Platform Services Inquiry, also fondly known here as Repo number five.
0: Is oh. <laughs> that name taken off internationally?
2: Look, we're working on it, Matt. We're working on it. Maybe check in next year.
0: <laughs> That's great. You also mentioned cartel conduct. What did our agency representative say about that?
2: Commissioner Carver noted that there'd been a potentially unsurprising serious uptick in immunity applications after the first individual sentencing that we had in September last year in the Vena Money cartel case. Marcus Betsy, who previously actually headed enforcement at the ACCC, he said that for a leniency program to work, it was critical to create a credible threat that the ACCC will actually discover cartels. You need people to think that you'll discover cartels in other ways for people to come forward. And he gave the example of arrangements the ACCCC has actually with their merger teams to identify matters that are suspicious. He, in fact, said that one of their guilty pleas came out of a cartel identified by a merger monitor in their monitoring duties.
0: Interesting times. Mm. Now, you run a panel yourself, were not you, which I think you might have proposed.
2: So my panel was looking at how jurisdictions around the world have had different degrees of success in incorporating concepts of equity, such as race, gender, and other factors in competition law and policy, and how each entity in competition law can and is playing a role. I was there from Australia. We had senior analyst from the South African Commission and ex-GNT lawyer Betty Makachwa speaking. We also had The Economist at the Department of Justice, Brian Clark, and we really brought the global element.
0: We've spoken about public benefits and authorisation, but there are other ways that fairness is working its way as a concept into Australian competition law, including a potential prohibition against unfair practices. How does that fit in with equity and the topic of the panel?
2: It really comes back to how intrinsic fairness is in competition law. Competitors must not be unfairly advantaged when competing for consumers. That's the basic premise of our competition legislation. And of course, fairness is also intrinsically tied to equity in terms of meaning, not treating people unequally and unfairly. As many listeners will know, our act's stated objective is to enhance the welfare of Australians through the promotion of competition and fair trading and provision for consumer protection. So we see there that it's Australians, not only consumers who we prioritize. It says to promote, not just maintain competition. And perhaps most of all, it prioritizes welfare over competition. And that's why so much of the act in our consumer law and our competition law and authorization provisions enables this focus on fairness. And it seems like it's, it's not just the ACCC, but government that is very open to this approach our new treasurer, Jim Chalmers, actually wrote that what the country currently needs is growth that puts equality and equal opportunity at the centre. It's not only fair, it's good economic policy. And if we look back at 1995, when the Competition and Consumer Act's objective was introduced, government back then was stressing that it wasn't interested in competition for its own sake. It said that economic efficiency is one element of a broader public policy context which also includes social considerations such as sustainability, community service, consumer interests, social welfare, and yes, it actually explicitly mentioned equity. So there was plenty for me to talk about on the panel because it's been such a clear focus of our competition laws for such a while now.
0: Absolutely. And the ACCC has proposed some changes to the merger laws as well. How will those incorporate questions of equity and other public benefits?
2: So, the ACCC's proposal included the consideration of public benefits in what it refers to as a second stage clearance option because, as ACCC Chair Gina Casscott-Leib said when announcing these proposals, the ACCC had received feedback on the value of that public benefit test beyond a test that's focused solely on substantial lessening of competition.
0: And how does that compare with the position in the US?
2: In the US, the test is only whether mergers substantially lessen competition or tend to create a monopoly. And the US horizontal merger guidelines only recognize an efficiencies exception and nothing broader. And Chair of the Federal Trade Commission over there, Lena Khan, confirmed that approach when she wrote in December in a Wall Street Journal article, if a merger would crush competition, the parties can't obtain a dispensation by swearing to use their power for whatever they view as the greater good. For enforcers to act otherwise would undermine the purpose of merger enforcement. Now, I don't want to suggest that in Australia we would approve a merger That, as Chair Khan says, crushes competition. Clearly, under the current authorization test, a merger's broader public benefits still need to outweigh the merger's broader public detriments as well as competitive detriments. But in contrast to the US, Australia's laws do see the consideration of what Chair Khan called the greater good as a fundamental purpose of merger enforcement. And we can contrast here. Chair Khan's words with our ACCC chair, Cass Gottlieb, who recently said, what I think is the beauty of the act is the authorisation process, which enables a much broader set of public benefit objectives. And that allows a full consideration of bringing those to bear and weighing them up in the decision-making process.
0: So you mentioned that the ACCC had uh, a big focus on greenwashing, sustainability claims. How else uh, are they addressing these issues under the consumer law?
2: The ACCC has noted that our acts, competition and consumer objectives are mutually reinforcing as informed consumers who are truly able to choose are the absolute underpinning of our competitive markets. Consumer law gives all of our businesses an equal opportunity to compete on merit, thanks to our unfair and misleading conduct legislation. So, enforcement around equity concepts such as race, for example, especially towards Indigenous Australians are more common in our consumer cases and our laws have historically horrifically failed our First Nations people and reflecting that it's completely justified that one of the ACCC's enduring priorities is conduct impacting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. And one of the ways that the ACCC's really acted on that priority is through unconscionable conduct cases and there have been numerous enforcement cases against unconscionable conduct that the ACCC's brought which has specifically addressed First Nations Australians. But as we've covered on this podcast, our ACCC doesn't think our laws are going far enough to prevent unfairness. And that debate is very much alive.
0: Yes, it is. Uh, of course, Betty Mkachwa has been on the podcast before. It's terrific that she is at the Competition Commission in South Africa now. What did you say on the panel?
2: South Africa was sort of held up as the poster child when it comes to incorporating equity into competition law. They have legislation that puts public interest considerations front and center of the competition law analysis. And much of that is tied to a concept of historically disadvantaged persons, which is anyone really that was disadvantaged and discriminated against under the apartheid policy. And that has Done wonders in a sense around equity for that jurisdiction. So she talked about how the country amended its main competition law again recently in 2018 to include public interest considerations in its enforcement practices and also said that the law forbids companies from price discrimination. For example, if a person is a member of this historically disadvantaged person's group.
0: You also interviewed Department of Justice economist Brian Clark about one of his areas of expertise, which is antitrust and labour markets. And that's something that we haven't talked about much in Australia, largely because employment arrangements are excluded specifically from our competition law. But uh, that might be about to change and we might be talking about that a lot more in the future.
2: I had such a good time interviewing Brian Clark. I thought his comments were especially fascinating, as you say, because we are on the cusp of reevaluating how our competition laws approach labor market issues. And also because our approach is just so starkly different to the US, where we have this carve out for employment related conditions. And that's linked very significantly to how different our industrial relations systems are. The federal minimum wage that we have here is much higher than the US. Our bargaining and awards system for wages has much greater coverage and multiple past reviews of our competition law from 1993 with the Hilmer report have kept concluding that we should keep that distinction and carve-out between competition law and employment matters, and the 2015 Harper Review in part justified this by saying that industrial laws are different to competition laws because they have ethical and social dimensions at their heart to a greater extent than competition law, and I find it so interesting that it seems precisely because of these ethical and social dimensions that Treasury and the ACCC are now re-examining whether those employment exceptions are still serving as well. The ACCC chair, Gina Cascotley, said that Treasury is in particular assessing how broadly no-poach clauses are used. So no-poach agreements are where competitors agree not to hire or recruit each other's employees. So they'd therefore be illegal under our cartel laws if our cartel lawyers applied to employment-related matters, which they don't. Chair Gottlieb said that if no-poach agreements were affecting not only senior individual professionals, but Australia's workforce more broadly, the ACCC would need to reconsider this carve-out from a policy perspective. However, in the chair's true fact-based style, the ACCC is waiting to see what the evidence tells them to do. And while we wait, it seems very timely to ask what competition law enforcement of employment matters would look like. And Brian was the perfect person to talk to about this given how focused the DOJ has been on labour markets recently.
0: It sounds like an incredible meeting to be at Mm. and really, I guess, a microcosm of all the antitrust and competition law issues that the whole world is grappling with right now. We're looking forward very much to your interview with Brian Clark next time. In the meantime, thank you so much for joining us on The Competitive Edge.
2: Thank you, Matt. So wonderful to get to be here. What a great interview. They used to say that there were big
1: differences historically between the antitrust approaches of the US and Europe. And according to the US, it was you protect competitors while we protect competition. But now, Matt, there seems to be a fair bit of convergence at the moment.
0: There does. I mean, the EU and the UK are passing lots of laws, but in the US, they're trying to do pretty similar things through executive orders and the agency's priorities. Anna's panel on equity sounds like it was especially timely
1: and you can also hear our interview with her co-panelist and former GNT lawyer, Betty Macatua back
0: in episode five. Yeah, a bit has changed in the last year and a half, but that interview really holds up. Has it been that long? It kind of feels longer. I know what you mean. This podcast won't make you live longer, but it'll feel that way. Certainly will. Well, before we wrap up episode 30, what's in your crystal ball? Well, we've been talking a lot about generative AI, and I'm sure you've seen that Jeffrey Hinton, who's been called one of the godfathers of AI... Has just resigned from Google so he can be free to talk about some of the dangers that unregulated AI might bring. Because it'll take away our jobs or
1: undermine the very idea of truth or destroy humanity?
0: Yeah, maybe all of those. Uh, He says he used to think that it would be decades before artificial intelligence could rival human intelligence, but now he thinks that's already happening, at least in some ways, and AI could quickly pull ahead so that bad actors will be able to do a lot more damage by harnessing AI And if the AI gets out of control, it could do even more damage all by itself.
1: Well, it'll be a while before AI can rival the natural intelligence of our Peter Waters, who's just put out an update on how AI can be used for misinformation and propaganda given how well it can create images and text that seem to be more
0: authentic than ever before. Yeah. And then Peter points out a few ways we can guard against that. Some of them depend on the way that these large language models are developed and distributed, and others depend on how we share authentic information and how we filter or process the information that comes our way.
1: And there's probably no way to completely mitigate those risks, just like there's no perfect solution to the misinformation
0: that is already out there. But we'll need to do what we can if we don't want our discourse to get any worse. That's right. And this is all reminding me of when I was much younger and perhaps a little bit nerdy. A little bit? I can't believe that. Perhaps. And once back then, I actually wrote an online chatbot that people could dial into and chat to. It was based on Joseph Weizenbaum's Eliza program, which would basically ask these like very open-ended questions and then look for a particular word or phrase in the response and ask another question about that when it would go. It was a very small language program. Did it hallucinate, that? It didn't. And it never took long for whoever had dialed in to realise that it wasn't real until I made it look like it was actually typing. It had a, the rhythm of a not-so-great typist, a hunt-and-peck artist It had hit the wrong key and then go back and delete it. Sounds like me. And after all that, it took people a lot longer uh, to realise what was going on.
1: I think we've found the godfather of
0: artificial stupidity. We well, can't be happy with that. I do think <laughs> it's interesting, though, that uh, at the moment, we're recognising AI by certain kinds of mistakes that it makes, like uh, not being able to draw fingers properly. But in the future, we might be relying on imperfections to identify authentic material.
1: Yeah, true. Unless the AI learns to fake those too.
0: Yeah, which it will, I guess. So, cheerful prediction
1: there. Remember, you can find relevant links in the show notes and email us at edge
0: at gtlaw.com.au. And we've got some great guests still to come, including Anna's interview with Department of Justice economist Brian Clark on antitrust and labour markets. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave us a review and tell your friends. Till next time, this was The Competitive Edge with Gilbert and Tobin.